we took a break from our study in Genesis last Wednesday with it being the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We had some communion. We just had a service of thanks and praise for what the Lord has done. And so it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Genesis. And what happened was Joseph revealed himself to his brothers after being separated them from years they gave him up as a slave. They told his father that they had killed Excuse me. They told his father that he had died. All came out. The truth came out. And there's this wonderful reunion now. And so Joseph here is a great picture of Jesus, just showing grace and mercy to his brothers. So what we have here going on in Genesis 46 is we left off two weeks ago with Jacob, his father, heading now to Israel. And God just reconfirming with Jacob, I'm with you. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. Go down there and be with Joseph. So that's where we left off. So with that being said, we're going to pick it up here in verse 6 of Genesis 46. And we're not going to go through every verse of this, but it says in verse 6, They took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with them. His son and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel. They literally list every name. Of the child, the grandchild, etc., the wife that's going to be coming here, going down to Egypt. Now, you remember, this was prophesied back to Abraham hundreds of years ago that this nation was going to go to this foreign land and be there. And they're going to be there for about 430 years and go through a difficult time. So this is God's fulfillment of prophecy. But just a couple things that we need to take note of. Look at verse 26. Take note of the numbers, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Now... This is kind of interesting. So there's about 70 people here. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that look up at the stars and you won't be able to count the stars. And that's a picture of you're not going to be able to count how many descendants you have. Now that was given to Abraham. Now I found this interesting and I just want to share this with you. I found this in a commentary I was reading. It says right here, from the time that God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years, 25 years to add one son named Isaac. So 25 years to have one son. Remember, Abraham's name means what? Father of many. Father of many. 25 years, had one son. So that was Isaac. It took Isaac 60 years to add another son of Israel, Jacob. He had Jacob and Esau. So it took Jacob about 50 or 60 years to add 12 sons and one daughter. So over the span here now of at least 150 plus years, this great nation of Israel is 70 people. That's really not that impressive, is it? In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, when God kind of asks a rhetorical question of why did I call you as a nation, God says, basically, I chose you because you're the wimpiest nation out there. I wanted to start with something small and build it to show my power and show my might. So just keep this in the back of your mind here. After about 150 plus years, 70 people. That's all. Fast forward 430 years. When the exodus happens, we're now in the millions. We're now in the millions. God used this time in Egypt, if you will, as an incubator to kind of grow. It says this, it took this family about 215 years to grow from 1 to 70, but another 430 years they grew to 2 million people. Just be honest with yourself. Here's a real quick teaching point. How frustrated do you get when God does not move as quickly as what you would like? How frustrated do you get when He is not taking care of the issues as quickly as you want? 
God has his time frame. His time frame is best. And the time for Israel to grow as a nation was in Egypt for 430 years. And that's where it blossomed to millions of people, which we'll get to when we go through our study here in the book of Exodus. So God did keep his promise. Maybe not exactly the way Abraham thought or intended, but he did keep his promise. So now they're moving into Egypt. Verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Real quick, if you're ever studying the Bible and you see verses like 28 and 29, where it mentions Goshen once in 28, then a second time in 28, and then another time in 29... Let that be a little just check mark to your life, saying, okay, Lord, why are you mentioning the name of this place three times? The name Goshen means to draw near, okay? So the name Goshen means to draw near. It makes me think of that passage in James 4 where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we want to draw near to God. This is the place, this is the location where God is going to have Israel draw near to him. This is the place where Israel is going to grow as a nation. This is also the place when you get to the book of Exodus... In Exodus chapter 8, there's no flies of the plague of flies in Goshen. In Exodus 9, there's no hail of the plague of hail in Goshen. This is a safe place where God put them and kept them, and this is where he wanted them to be. It reminds me of the great psalm in Psalm 91, and you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read you a couple verses of it real quick. It says right here, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, And my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. When you're in God's will, where where God wants you to be, he takes care of you. Now please do note that that passage does not promise you health, wealth, and happiness. What that passage is saying is when you are where God wants you to be, he will take care of you. He will meet your needs. Now, that still may mean that you have areas of tribulation and trouble, but it means God is seeing you through that. So the question comes up, where is your Goshen? Where does God want you? Where you can draw near to God and he can draw near to you. You need to figure out where that's at. For each person, it's a little bit different, I think. But there needs to be a spot in your life where you stop and you say, Lord, I am growing and drawing near to you. We mention this all the time out here. If somebody ever comes up to me and says they feel empty spiritually, they do not feel empty because the Lord pulled himself away from them. They feel empty because they pulled themselves away from the Lord. He promises if you put the effort into that walk in relationship with him, He will put that effort into the walking relationship back with you. Ask yourself this right now. If you're feeling a bit dry spiritually, if you're going through a difficult time, are you drawing near to God? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you spending time in service? Are you spending time in fellowship? And here's a big one. Are you spending time in praise? Because look at this. Go back to verse 28. Who went before him to get into Goshen? Judah. What does Judah's name mean? Praise. So what this is really saying, if you take out their names, Judah and Goshen, what this is really saying is praise went before him as he drew near to God. Now think about that for a second. Praise went before him to get him to draw near to God. If you are feeling a little empty and dry in your life spiritually, how is your time of praise and worship? I think that is one of the biggest elements that is missed in a typical Christian's walk. 
Because we don't have that time just to stop and say, Lord, I want to praise you. Now, that doesn't mean at 6 a.m. in the morning when you get up to get ready to go to work, you're pulling out the guitar and singing a praise chorus. Praise can just simply mean that you're going to go to Psalms and read some of those Psalms of praise. Praise can just mean that you're going to stop and start your prayer out with praise. That's something that Dawn and I try to do sometimes when we're doing our prayer. Is let's, just, let's just start with praise. Just really start with that. And what does the book of Psalms tell us? You will enter his courts with thanksgiving and with praise. I think a lot of times as believers we feel empty spiritually. And you may be saying, well, I'm serving, I'm in fellowship, I'm in the word. Those are all good. Are you in praise? That's a key thing. Praise is not treating it like a music station. I like this song, I don't like this song, I like this arrangement, I don't like this arrangement. Praise is I'm going to let go of everything I'm dealing with and focus on the Lord. And as I just focus on the Lord, and that praise may be singing to myself, it may be just lifting up praises of what God has done, it may be reading some psalms, that is part of the way that you draw near to the Lord. And as you draw near to the Lord, that's when you feel His presence in your life. And if right now you're kind of feeling like you and God aren't as close as you should be, maybe tonight's the night you go home for devotions and you just praise Him. You just praise Him for who He is. They went to Goshen. They drew near to God through praise. Remember that. Now, anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything they recovered thus far? So we've got them out of Canaan. We've got them now going to Egypt. And they're going to stay in this land of Goshen. Yeah, Samuel. Well, would God show off something? Yeah, He likes to show off, and it's not a prideful show off. That's the way that He shows His power. And it goes back to the New Testament. Paul even wrote that one of the ways you know that somebody is an apostle is because they have the signs and wonders of an apostle. Um, Jesus used signs to show people that He was the Messiah. How did the blind get a chance to see? How did the lepers get healed? How did the dead get raised? The point was when somebody came and said, Hey, guess what? I had leprosy. I don't anymore. Well, that's not possible. Well, it is. It's possible if the Messiah has touched you. So God does show off, but it's not in the prideful sense that we think of showing off. It's revealing His power so that way people can see His power and be pointed back towards Him. So, good question. Yeah, Ryan. Uh, like the fact that you mentioned the uh, decades and centuries that went by before the Yeah. And, and that's a real key point there is God's time frame is not our time frame in any way whatsoever. And that's one of the points that we're going to bring up here actually on Sunday as we get closer to Christmas. When God said back in Genesis 3 that he was going to take care of this whole sin problem, it took thousands of years to get to that point of taking care of the sin problem. Jesus ascended into heaven and basically said, hey, don't worry, I'm coming back. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Now, what did Peter write? Peter said, do not become slack concerning his promise, because what happens is we kind of get desensitized to that. And we need to remember that that time frame of him waiting to come back is an opportunity for us to grow when the Lord be lights and witnesses. But most importantly, it's an opportunity for people to get saved. The longer God waits to come back, the more opportunity is for people to get saved. And it's kind of interesting. I got saved um, 20 years ago. And I remember getting saved 20 years ago and just thinking, oh, Lord, just return, just return. Now, if any of you have gotten saved in the last 20 years, aren't you thankful that the Lord didn't return when I asked him to return? Some of you that got saved before I got saved. You may have got saved back in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or what have you. And you may have been said, oh, Lord, return. Well, I'm glad he waited. 
So even though right now I'm praying, oh Lord, return, come quickly, Lord Jesus, every day that he waits is another opportunity for me to serve him, to spread the gospel. Because here's the catch. When I die and go to heaven, I never get to spread the gospel again. And I like spreading the gospel. It's a great thing. There's no one to witness to in heaven. They're already saved, you know? It's classic preaching to the choir. So by the Lord waiting, it gives me opportunities to do things that that season is going to change. I told Dawn the other day, I was sitting in our living room, and the way our living room is set up, if you haven't been in our house, you know, we have this kind of L-shaped couch, and the TV's on the other wall. And I, I don't know what it is. It's just reached a point where it's called the living room, I understand, so that's where people live. But the kitchen's on one side, and, you know, the boys' bedrooms, etc., on the other side. We have five boys and a dog now in the house. Somebody's always just cutting across the living room. So I want to put tape on the floor, kind of like Les Nessman, you know, where put tape and say, you can't go past this barrier because every time you go in front of it, you know, next to Jesus, my most prized possession is my TV. I can't see <laughs> what I'm watching. And as they, as they walk past, they also walk past loud. They walk, and they just stop in the middle of the television. And it's just, so anyway, I'm telling Dawn, I said, we need to change this living room thing. We need to move this around or something like that. And Dawn, this is Dawn, she always plays this card. You know, in so many years, you're going to have a quiet house, and you're going to miss this. And my response always is, no, I'm not. I am not. I, I, I distinctly remember, and my parents aren't in here. They're serving in the back so I can share this. I distinctly remember when Dawn and I got married... We didn't have a, I can't remember, we either had a washer and didn't have a dryer, or we had a dryer and didn't have a washer. Anyway, it, it was coming, and we had like about a week of right into our marriage where we had to take the laundry over to mom and dad's to finish it up. And I can remember us going over to mom and dad's just a few days after we got married, finishing up our laundry. And you know, you got everything done, and so you're just kind of standing around. And I remember dad looking at me saying, well, James, it's time for you to go home now. And I remember him saying that. My parents have not missed me one bit. Yeah, amen. Um, I don't even know where my point is. My point is this. God's timing is the longer he waits, it's more of an opportunity for us to serve him. It's more of an opportunity for people to get saved. Because if people are going to get saved, you want them to get saved before the tribulation happens. You know, we love them enough that we don't want them to have to go through the tribulation. So yes, God's time frame here of taking hundreds of years to build Israel to this point of a nation, taking thousands of years to come for the Messiah... God's timing is different than ours. Yeah, Samuel. Yeah, there's that verse, and you don't know if it's a literal verse or of a symbolic verse, where basically God says uh, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And I think that's kind of the Lord's point of just trying to say our idea of time frame is completely different than God's idea of time frame. And so for us, we're sitting here thinking, oh, Lord, it's been 2,000 years. Where's your return? God, who is above time and space, boy, 2,000 years is nothing. Absolutely nothing. All right, anybody else got anything here before we move on? All right, so they show up in Goshen. Judah leads the way. Praise leads us into a closer walk with the Lord. So what happens when they meet? They fall on each other. Verse 29, you know, that would have been something to see. I mean, that really would. A lot of times when I make that joke, I've been something to see. It's usually because it's not good. Boy, verse 29 would have been amazing to see Joseph and Jacob reunited there. Verse 30, and Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you're still alive. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even to now, both we and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The Egyptians did have an agricultural background in some ways, but any type of shepherds or taking care of cattle, they really looked down on that type of profession. So basically, what Joseph is saying, guys, come and tell him that you're shepherds. Because since you're shepherds, he's going to say, oh, nice to meet you, but I don't want you near me. And so we're going to send you to this area of Goshen, which is kind of out of the way a little bit. So you're still protected, you're still safe, but you're not involved in this culture. This is one of those ongoing biblical points where God has asked us to be separate from the world. He's asked us to. Can you go with 2 Corinthians, please? 2 Corinthians 6. This is some of those verses that you can take it to extremes. And so this is where I say you've got to find those balance verses with this. 2 Corinthians 6. On one hand, the Lord has asked us to be separate from the world. But on the other hand, Jesus said, occupy till I come. As we've said out here many times before, there, there's a part of us as believers that would love to go up into the mountaintop, be shielded from every sin and temptation and fleshly problem, and just sit at the mountaintop and wait for Jesus to return. Promise you have no service, you have no opportunity to worship or collectively or get a chance to share the gospel. That's not what God has called us. He said, occupy, be a part of this. But he says, as you're a part of this, don't let this world taint you. See, look at 2 Corinthians 6. And let's go ahead here and pick it up. Oh, let's start in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? That's a false god. What part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17 is the key. Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 17 one more time, please. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. You don't have to turn there, but one more passage kind of backing this up. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've made this point many times out here. Too often you see believers talk like the world, dress like the world, act like the world, live like the world. We're called out of that. We're called to be separate. If people would spend a day with us, they should be able to see that we're different. They're different by the choices that we make to entertain ourselves with music and television and movies. We're different on the way we speak. We're different on the way we act. We're different on the way we handle the world. Our anger is different, hopefully. Our our self-control is better. Our language is different. But the problem is you see so many people that claim to be Christ, and they're just like the world. We're called to be different on how we act and what we do. And I tell you, it's difficult. 
If you've got kids at home, you know how difficult that is. Even just being in the workplace, you know how difficult that is. And what happens is we're the minority. You go to work, everybody speaks ill of their wife. Well, that's just what everybody does. You go to work, everybody's flirting with everybody else. Everybody lets these words come out. You know, we have a work language and then we have a home language. That's just the way it is. No, it's not. Or, you know, you go to school and that's what everybody's watching, that everybody's listening. We're called out. We are separate. We are the minority. That's the way it's going to be. And so basically what God is doing in His infinite wisdom, He is putting the nation of Israel and Goshen away from Egypt to keep them safe, to keep them protected. And that's what the Lord still wants to do for us. He wants us to be a part of this world, to be a light and a witness in all we do and say, but there needs to be a separation to make sure the world isn't tainting us. Now, the Bible calls us saints. And this is a term that we don't like to use too much. I don't usually walk around saying I'm St. James. It just doesn't come across real good. That word saint, though, literally just means separated. That's all it means. So when the Bible refers to us as saints, it just means that we are separated from the world system and we're not like the world. Just ask yourself real quick, if somebody was just following you for a day, seeing how you treat people, seeing what you watch listening to or or how you speak or how you handle yourself at work, would they see any separation between you and the world? Would they? We're called out. We're called to be separate. Doesn't mean we go run and hide in the mountains. We still have an occupation here to live our life and be like a witness. But God has called us to be out. And that's why Joseph is saying to his brothers, hey, when Pharaoh says, what do you do? Tell him your shepherds. He's going to put you out in this area of Goshen because he doesn't want you guys to be near him. That's exactly what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 47, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that possess, have come from the land of Canaan. Indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the lands because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. (coughs) Excuse me. Basically, what what Pharaoh is saying here is, Hey, we got people that are willing to take care of the livestock. Verse 6, please do this. Verse 7, Joseph brought in his father Jacob and sent him before Pharaoh and Jacob. Blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been evil, excuse me, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his fathers and his brothers and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. A couple interesting points, a couple interesting points here that we need to bring out. First off, please do note how many times Joseph refers to his father and brothers. You may think, okay, that's not a big deal. Joseph has no animosity towards his brothers. None. Now just think about this. Say, say your family did this to you. They left you as a slave. They sold you as a slave. They basically lied about what happened to you. They were awful to you, just absolutely awful. So would you just constantly walk around saying, hey, when you meet my brothers, 
No, I've heard people say this before. I don't claim my family. Joseph is willing to let this go. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to move forward. It's really an amazing picture of grace. It really is. Think about this. Joseph is supposed to be a picture of Jesus. Jesus calls me his brother. I'm a brother to God. That's an amazing thing when I think of how sinful and awful I am. And Jesus says, nope, that's my brother. It's a neat picture of grace and mercy. Now, Jacob, interesting quote here, verse 9. The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father and the days of their pilgrimage. Basically, what Jacob is saying is, listen, I'm not as old as my ancestors got to be, and my days have been rough and tough. That's true. Jacob ends up living 147 years. His dad lived 180 years, and his grandpa, Abraham, lived 175 years. So he's right. He didn't live as much. His days were few and evil. Well, few is a relative term. You know, 147 to us is not few. But evil or difficult, depending on your translation. He did have a difficult life. Part of the reason why Jacob had a difficult life is because he made some really stupid choices. Now, this is difficult for me as a pastor. When somebody comes into my office and they talk about how tough their life is. And as we start talking, I realize their life is very difficult. My heart goes out to them, but their life is also very difficult because they constantly keep making choices that aren't in line with God's will. There's this passage in Peter that we don't like to talk about too much because it's kind of gross, but the Bible says, just as the dog returns to the vomit. That idea of jumping back in to just disgusting patterns and habits. People that have a tendency to return to the vomit are also the first ones to complain about being in the vomit. I don't know how many times I've seen gals out here be dating somebody, and it's not a good godly choice, and they kind of have this epiphany, and they break up, and next thing you know, four or five months later, they're back with vomit again. And it's like, why are you dating vomit again? And then you see people that had awful life choices, they get out of those choices, a few months later, they're back playing in vomit again. It's an awful analogy. It's a disgusting thing to think about, but that's why the Lord uses that picture. Jacob had a rough life. He was also a liar. He was a sneak. He was an awful guy to be around. Now, the Lord worked on his heart, amen, but his life was kind of evil in some ways. It was difficult. But look at this phrase, pilgrimage. He says, this isn't my home. He knew that there was a bigger picture. There was something more going on. And this wasn't his home. If you're taking notes, just write this down. Philippians 3.20 is probably the most famous verse. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I'm not trying to put anybody down when I say this because we're very blessed with where we live as a nation, as an American. But when we get up to heaven, there is no nationalities. We're the body of Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we got to remember. we got to remember that that's what happens. That's our citizenship. That's what matters more than anything. Hebrews even goes very simply. It goes, I, I love this. It's Hebrews 13, verse 14. I'm going to read this to you out of the New Living Translation. Hebrews 13, 14 says this, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This is not our permanent home. It's not. I remember years ago, before we had kids, when anytime Dawn and I went out and we stayed overnight someplace, Dawn would literally find the cheapest hotel she could find. 
And that's where we would stay at. If we were playing Monopoly, we always stayed on Baltic Avenue. That's where we always stayed. And I'm like, can't we at least move up to the light blues? You know, we have to stay at Baltic. And every now and then we get to stay at a yellow, an orange, or a green. It's like, oh, man, that was nice. I remember one time before we had kids, I said, I'm, I'm making the reservation. And we stayed at about a green hotel. That was about the best I could get us. But she would go to purple. She wants to be on Baltic. And any time we would go to these hotels, and I remember one time we went, and I think Renee went with us. We were down in Cincinnati, and he had a room. We had a room where we went down to go watch some Braves games in Cincinnati. And it was this classic. It was disgusting. It was dirty. The, going back to the TV, the TV didn't work properly. And it was just this thing where it reached the point, and I'm not exaggerating. I would go into the hotel room first and kind of clean up the bathroom just to make it presentable. For Dawn, and Dawn was like, oh, we're saving money. I said, but we're getting these diseases that it's going to, you know, it's not worth it. It's, it's just not. But what would happen is we'd go to these hotels, and in the back of my mind, this is not the way vacation is supposed to work. I kept thinking, two more days, and I get to go home. Two more days. And sometimes I do that in this world. Oh, Lord, you could return today. Oh, boy, this, this is a rough week. i got something coming up tomorrow. I'm not looking for that, forward to that. I'm not looking forward to next week. Jesus, you could return today. I could go to bed tonight and not wake up because the rapture may happen in my sleep. This is not my home. Oh, it breaks my heart when I watch the news. It breaks my heart to see some decisions that are being made in this country, in this nation. But this is not my home. And i got to remember, as a believer, it doesn't mean I quit fighting the good fight down here, but I am a pilgrim passing through for a short period of time, and I can't allow the things of this world to drag me down too much because I'm a pilgrim. And this is what I like about Jacob. It's a pilgrimage. That's what it is. The, the years of my pilgrimage. What a neat thing. Sojourning, my travel. We're just passing through till we get to our eternal destination of heaven. Good wording there. Very good wording. And I love verse 12. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. I tell you, what a neat picture of Jesus. That's the way I look at it. Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus provides us with everything we need. Verse 12, I think, is a real neat picture of Jesus. Here's Joseph meeting all the needs of his father's, brothers, households, etc., what an amazing picture, once again, of grace and mercy. I can't stress that to you enough. Beautiful picture of grace and mercy. Anybody have any final questions, comments, here? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. And I was trying to do a little bit of studying on this today, and they can't say for sure, and I'm glad you brought up the time frame there, Ryan. They can't say for sure what pharaohs were going on at this time. Because it'd be kind of neat to kind of combine that secular history with the biblical history there. But yeah, it does kind of give you a little bit of a background here. It's been a couple thousand years. We've still got a couple thousand more years here until Christ comes. And then so we've still got a couple more thousand years to where we're at. It really does help put that in perspective there when you think of the time frame. You know, so often when we're going through the Bible, we think of, oh, Abraham, Moses. Ah, oh, must have been like contemporaries. No, hundreds of years between them. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years between Moses and David. There's a lot of time frame that's happening here in these chapters. Anybody else have anything here before we get ready to close up? Yeah, Samuel.
A world? Right. Right. Because this, this earth is corrupted and sinful. The, the Bible says that the entire creation, the entire creation is under the curse. The entire creation. That's why when I go back to the crick, I get poked by thistles. It's the creation of the curse. That's why when I go back to the crick, I get near poison ivy, I get poison ivy. It's a creation. It's the curse. So what God is saying, this whole world has been tainted by sin and the curse, so he's going to start completely over with a new heaven and new earth, so that way we don't have to carry any of this curse into uh, eternity. Anybody else have anything here before we get ready to close up? All right. I was going to try to get into uh, verses 13 through 26. It's a lot of verses, but it actually goes pretty quick. We don't have time for that tonight, so we'll just have to pick that up next week. So let's go ahead. Let's pray these things into our life here. Heavenly Fathers, we read this. We-